Well, what do I say after last Sunday? If you weren't here, you missed a surprise, a surprise for all but uh, a few in the room, at least in the first service. It was no surprise to me after first, but it sure was before. After my first service sermon, like I often do, I asked everyone to stand and sing, and, and then Drew didn't sing. He overruled me, and he had everyone be seated. And we all obeyed because of his muscles. <laughs> and then a video started in honor of my 500th sermon at Desert Springs Church. And then Pastor Ron got up and said many kind, sweet words, some of which were true. <laughs> he gave me one of the coolest pieces of sports memorabilia in the world, in my humble opinion. And then you all thanked me far more than I deserve. At least in first service, I cried like a baby. I wasn't expecting that at all. I didn't know what number sermon I was on, and even if I did, I wouldn't have expected anything like that. I was half tempted last Sunday to bumble through a, a thank you to you and to Ron and to, to others who had planned that, and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't so that I could give it a little more thought now and... Um, Look at some notes that I've scribbled down about this. In my first sermon as the preaching pastor of this church, I said that I often say to my wife, I can't wait to grow old with you. And I said back then, almost 11 years ago now, uh, it's fitting for me to say that to Desert Springs Church. I can't wait to grow old with you. I believe in long-term ministry. I don't necessarily believe it's a sin every time a pastor moves from one church to another, but I think there can be some bad reasons to leave, and there's some good reasons to stay, and there's some things about long-term ministry that can't be said about short-term ministry. I know the pastorate is not the same thing as a marriage, but there are some similarities. And so just like in marriage, milestones should be celebrated not to anyone's credit, but in thanks to God. So 10 years, almost 11 years, 500 sermons together signifies a lot, far more than my endurance or perseverance. It says far more about you than it does me. One thing it signifies is a measure of peace in our church. You don't get to 10 years and 500 sermons with a ton of conflict, and so You've put up with me. I love that phrase in Colossians 3, put up with one another. It's so realistic, right? That's part of what we do in the church. We do more than that, but not less than that. We put up with one another. So you've put up with my slow sanctification over the years. You've put up with sermons that are longer than they should be. You've put up with me putting my foot in my mouth countless times. You're welcome for the lunchtime fodder I've given you over the years. You've put up with slow email responses if you've emailed me. You've put up with me doing some outside ministry and hence being less available than would be ideal. You put up with, a, well, with the subpar personal skills of an introvert. And you put up with a pastor who limps along with a lot of migraines and health issues. You're patient with me. I'm so thankful for that. More than just patience with me, though, uh, you've been so encouraging to our family and so affirming 
uh, of our ministry here. In more than just affirming and loving, more importantly, you have consistently and increasingly received the word uh, in its unvarnished fashion. It's like 1 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says that they received the word for what it is, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And you've done that uh, time and time again. I love it when a guest preacher is here and preaches for you and they tell me afterwards, man, your, your people listen well. They are eager, hungry for the word. And I say, yep, I know. So it's a high privilege to preach the word here and to live out our Christian lives together in covenant community. I could go on and on, but we have number 501 to get to this morning. <laughs> Trent said to me, well, now you're starting over. It probably feels like it's just number one. It might as well be number one because we're not going to do that for a really long time, if ever. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's fine with me. But in short, thank you. Desert Springs Church, we're so glad that God led us here many years ago. We're so glad uh, that you continue to have us. Uh, we're so glad to be uh, working alongside our elders and staff and deacons and for the unity and peace the Lord has given us uh, over the years. And we pray it is so for many more years to come. So let's pray now. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we thank you for this church specifically, this body of baptized believers in fellowship together under your word and dwelt by your spirit, guided by your scriptures and led by godly shepherds. We're thankful, all of us, for that. We're thankful for you and your good promises to us and your kindness to us. You have been better to us than we deserve. So we ask, Lord, boldly and in faith today that you would be kind to us again. Be kind to us to stir in our hearts affection for you and confidence in your kingdom, confidence in your word and confidence in your plan. Lord, stir us to love each other. Stir us to think your thoughts to set our minds not on things of the earth, but on things above where Christ is seated, to walk not by sight, but by faith. Help us, Lord, to see your glory for our good and for your namesake. Show us what you will from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, as we wrap up, for now anyway, this series in First and Second Samuel, which we've called In Search of the King. Today we find the King. Let me take us first to the New Testament, though, with this thought. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, one of the things he told them to pray is, Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom come. Now, when he told his disciples this, in many ways, the kingdom had already come. It had already begun. That was John the Baptist's message years before Jesus began preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's about here. It is nigh. And then Jesus was explicit when he said things like, the kingdom of God is already in your midst because the king... 
is already in your midst. The kingdom had already come by the time Jesus told his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. And yet it wasn't an empty request that he taught them to pray because the kingdom comes and continues to come in degrees, in stages. His kingdom has come. It is ever increasingly still coming. And so we pray still today as Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come. Well, 1,000 years before Jesus, another king had come. He had begun to reign. His kingdom, really we could say God's kingdom on earth, had finally begun after much anticipation and longing and promises that looked to be on hold. The kingdom has come by 2 Samuel 2, but the kingdom of God on earth As we'll see today, it came not all at once. It came not without opposition. It came not with everyone acknowledging it or embracing it. So here's the point of this message this morning right up front. A point which spans King David in 2 Samuel 2 all the way to Jesus from the first century even till now. The point is this. God's kingdom is often small, marginalized, opposed, imperfect, and seemingly unpromising. And yet, his kingdom is slowly advancing, and its outcome is sure. That's the message today. Should we go home? Or shall I show you? I'll show you. 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, we'll read the first four verses here. After this, David inquired the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. We'll stop there. Now we'll see in this chapter four themes. And the last of those four themes will have four different parts to it. The first theme that we see is in these first four verses, which I read. We could call it the beginning of the king's reign. The beginning of the king's reign. This is what we read, the beginning of David's reign. Now remember, we saw last week, upon hearing the news of the death of King Saul in the last chapter, David and his men gave themselves over to mourning. David then handled the righteous judgment of a man who said that he killed the king. And then David took time to write a thoughtful lament about the king's death and Israel's defeat, and and to teach it to Israel. So surely after those patient and gentlemanly responses to the king's death, we'd expect David to then immediately take what's his, the throne of the kingdom of Israel. After all, it's been a long time coming, 
And God's plan for David and Israel has been quite clear ever since that quiet anointing in Bethlehem back in 1 Samuel 16. There the prophet said David was the king to be. Just chapters later, it's Jonathan, Saul's son, who's also acknowledging David's future with the throne. He's rescinding his right to the throne through blood in bowing before David as future king. It's Abigail, chapters later, just some girl that David sort of happened upon. Oh, he eventually married her, but at first it's just some girl, random girl who who he happened upon, and she knew of God's kingly promises to David. Eventually, even Saul came to acknowledge the inevitable, that his throne would vanish and David's throne would be established. We've seen several times in 1 Samuel that David acted like a king even before he was king. In small ways, he acted like a king. He protected, he led, he gave gifts, he defeated Israel's enemies. The point is is that God has slowly proven his plan in the decades between the first anointing of David in 1 Samuel 16 and the present time here as we come to the end of 2 Samuel 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. You see, Saul was the only roadblock between David's anointing king to be and him ascending the throne. And the news of 2 Samuel 1 is the roadblock has been removed. Yes, the king is dead, mourn. But turn the page. The roadblock of Saul has been removed. It seems obvious now, if ever, what God would have David do. He only has left to do it, to take the empty throne. But 2 Samuel 2 does not begin with this kind of sentiment, does it? What were the first words we read in verse 1? After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? Had David asked you that question, you'd say, Duh! Of course, it's an empty throne. It's yours for the taking. Absolutely, you must. If not, you, you, you are slow on the Lord's promises to you. No. David had been living in a Philistine city south of Israelites' territory. And it seems obvious that he should go up, but he still asks. He asks, shall I go up? Shall I go up now is probably implied. To which city shall I go up? David presumes nothing on the Lord. He knows the Lord gives promises, but the pathway to those promises is often the path you didn't pick or wouldn't have seen. David seeks the Lord. He is, after all, a man after God's own heart. And he is also a man who hears from the Lord time and time again, and so God speaks. And God says, go up to Hebron. Hebron was north of where David was, so it's go up geographically. But Hebron was also 3,000 feet above the land around it, and so going up to Hebron is going up vertically, right? But the exact wording is even more meaningful than just geography or elevation. 
When God says here, go up, he uses a specific Hebrew word and it means something like ascend. There's something majestic about it, something kingly about it. Ascend to your throne in Hebron. Go up to the place I've assigned you. This means that God is the one who is sending. God is the one who is opening the gates for the king's ascension to his place and to his reign. Perhaps this is a foreshadow of what David would later write in Psalm 24. David wrote there, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up. Get ready, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then David asks, who is this king of glory? And he says, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. You get the feeling as you're reading through this, the king he's talking about is himself, and the Lord is making the way, and he's a righteous king unlike Saul, and so he has every right to, to ascend the hill of the Lord and take that spot. Who is this king of glory? twists it he says it's the Lord the Lord mighty in battle the Lord strong and mighty David speaks of himself and God in these confusing ways he writes of himself in terms too lofty for for his own reality and experience and and even future just tuck that away we'll see it again this morning But it's also significant that the place David is to go up to, to ascend upon, is Hebron. There's historical significance about Hebron. This is where Abram first settled in the land. This is where God spoke his covenant promises to Abraham at Hebron. This is where God told Abraham that he'll give him a land, and he demarcated the boundaries of that land. This is where God told Abraham and Sarah that from them shall come kings and nations. This is where Abraham was eventually buried. And not just Abraham, but Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah, all buried in Hebron. Thousands of years later, God tells David, go to Hebron. A new beginning, but built on the promises of old. A new beginning, but one in continuity with the fathers of old. And there in Hebron, the people of Judah anoint David king over Judah. There was that first anointing in 1 Samuel 16, which was private. This one is public. This one is more like an inauguration than a prophecy. It's official now. The long-awaited day is here. As Genesis 49 foretold, one from Judah one day would have the scepter and would gain homage of the people and the obedience of the people. And here it is, one from Judah ruling in Judah. And yet, before we get too optimistic... Verse 4 emphasizes Judah. Men of Judah anointed him king over the house of Judah. That means over one of the 12 tribes. Judah is one of the 12 
tribes. David was to be king over all Israel, all the tribes. And here he is. He's king over the house of Judah. The kingdom is here. Rejoice. The king is on his throne. Hosanna. And the kingdom comes in increments. It does not come all at once. As we'll see as we progress through this chapter, not everyone recognizes the king. God's kingdom is often small and marginalized, even opposed. But God's promises unfold surely, even if slowly. Zechariah 4 encourages God's people to not despise the days of small things. Do you despise the days of small things? Are you content only with a church this size or bigger? Are you content with a kind of Christianity that's all victory and no suffering? Do you rejoice much more when a, a star, someone famous, becomes a Christian than when a homeless person becomes a Christian? Well, you might then despise the day of small things, and you shouldn't. Zechariah 4 is relevant for David's time. It's relevant for us today. Jesus said that his kingdom is like a mustard seed, small, hidden, and yet growing, and sometimes growing below the ground where you can't see it. God has, yes, put all things under the feet of the risen Savior, but we don't yet see all things under his feet. Yes, his enemies have been defeated, and yet we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We really do wrestle. There is a battle. So we pray, thy kingdom come, and we keep praying it until it does in its fullness. David must have been praying something similar himself to thy kingdom come because he hints at the kingdom's growth in the very next scene of 2 Samuel 2. Secondly, the invitation to the king's reign. The invitation to the king's reign. We'll start in the second half of verse 4. It says, When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. This is an invitation of the king's reign. And it's to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. You might remember, the people of Jabesh-Gilead were those in 1 Samuel 31 who heard of Saul's death and heard of Saul's body being hung in a Philistine temple. And they went on a special ops mission in the dark of night to go and get the body and bring it back home and bury it properly in their own land. After all, Saul was the one who rescued them from the Ammonites in 1 Samuel 11. One of Saul's first moves as king. And one of Saul's brightest spots on a dark canvas of his, uh, of his career. 
The people of Jabesh-Gilead were eternally grateful for Saul's rescue back then, and they were loyal to Saul even after his death. So David is in the far south, and he sends messengers up to the far north, more like Saul country, to people who by now are famous for their loyalty to Saul. So we shouldn't assume their loyalty to David and then just their honorableness to Saul's body. We should realize that Israel is a kingdom split and divided in these days. So instead, this passage, which we just read, seems to be implying that if David can get this city, he can get any city. This is as Saulite of a city as you get. These are his biggest fans. So here we have the Lord's anointed dealing with would-be enemies, not with, not with the sword, not with imprisonment, not with threat, but with grace, with grace. In fact, that's a great word for what we see in verse 6, grace. It says, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. That's that rich Hebrew word, chesed, God's covenant mercy, love. May God show his chesed love to you. And notice, he says, and I will do this good to you. The this isn't in the ESV, but it's there in the Hebrew. I will do this good to you. Not this much, but this thing. What thing? Chesed, God's love. This is amazing. Here he says, may the Lord show you his divine chesed love, and I will do it for you. David, once again, you've said too much. <laughs> this is nearing blasphemy. You can't do that. You can't say, God, do this. I'll do it. But it's all over. There's this imprint of a divinity to come, not in David himself, but in David's greater son, Many, many, many years later, also born in Bethlehem. It's hinted at here, isn't it? David says too much in anticipation of the one to come for whom it doesn't say too much. So he says to these people, Saul, your Lord is dead. Judah has already anointed me king over them. So be strong and be valiant because there's going to be opposition to me. But be strong and be valiant and come unto me. Come unto me. Come under me. Come under my rule. He welcomes his would-be enemies, unlike a king like the nations, unlike Saul would have. He sends good news. Notice he sends messengers even. Verse 5. Dare we change the word? He sends apostles out into the land of his would-be enemies. And he says, come. You hear this, Christian? He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus came unto his enemies to reconcile them to the God with whom they are at enmity. Jesus came to make peace by the blood of his cross. He came that we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It's as if Jesus says today, 
your king is dead, come unto me. Come under me through my grace in love. Your king is dead. Whatever your king is, if it's you, a politician, your king is dead. It's as good as dead. Your king is nothing. It's few. Your king is dead. Come unto me. I'm the king, the only king. Come to me through grace and love. Back, back to 2 Samuel 2, we're frustratingly not told what Jabesh Gilead did with this gracious invitation. We're not told how the story ends. And it's possible that no response recorded in Scripture means that no response was given historically by those in Jabesh Gilead. Perhaps they were people of indifference. Or perhaps they didn't see the kingdom. Perhaps they didn't recognize the true king. Some people respond to God's kingdom and God's king and God's gracious invitation with indifference, with no response, which really is a response. And yet others respond to God's kingdom with outright opposition. That's the third thing we see. The opposition to the king's reign, starting in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, and by the way, Saul's cousin, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanim, Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to, to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. In the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah, that is before he came to rule in Jerusalem, it was seven years and six months. This is opposition to the true king's reign. The kingdom is now divided. We now have a clear Team Saul and Team David. Oh, there's been a Team Saul and a Team David for a long, long time, many decades in this story. But we had hoped that Saul's death would change that. And there wouldn't be Team Saul or Team David, but it would be Team Yahweh ruling through his king, his, his viceroy, David. But it's clear now that Israel is still a divided nation, and even more so now with two official kings, not one king to be and one king on his way out. Now, by the way, we're told in 1 Samuel 31 that all of Saul's sons died. Remember that? So Ishbosheth, here in this chapter, may have been an adopted son or a son through a concubine. We're not told. But it's fair to say Saul's sons died and that this is a son of Saul. As far as Abner is concerned, he'll do. He'll do. Together with the other tribes of Israel, they have erected an alternative kingdom. And Abner is really the one with the puppet strings. The language is telling. Verse 8, it says, Abner took Ishbosheth. In verse 9, he made him king. Abner is the real power behind this new king. He's made himself a puppet king in this young, inexperienced, and we'll see later in other chapters this rather weak Ishbosheth with a horrible name. He's kind of ishy, maybe. Boom. 
they have erected another kingdom. Do you hear that? They have erected an alternative kingdom to God's kingdom. Not David's kingdom, to God's kingdom. This is the very nature of sin. This is as old as the garden. Has God really said? Is he really good? Is he really to be obeyed? Is he really the king? This is Psalm 2 once again. A psalm I've said before we could read in any one of these first Samuel messages. We must read it again today, at least parts of it. Remember this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. Judah has taken refuge in its king. Abner and company are like the kings of the earth who've taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is the key to this chapter. It's resistance to God and resistance to God's king and resistance to God's kingdom. Later on in this chapter, we'll be tempted to be a bit sympathetic with Abner. Don't be. Abner knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows God's promises and plans for David. We know this because we know that he was there in 1 Samuel 26 when Saul confessed very loudly in a valley that David would take the throne, that David would succeed, that God was with David. Abner was there. We also know that Abner knows of God's promises to David because of Abner's own confession in the next chapter here. Look at 2 Samuel 3 with me. 2 Samuel 3. In this chapter, later on, he sleeps with one of Saul's concubines. And then Ishbosheth, Saul's son and present king of Israel, he rebukes Abner for it. Then, astonishingly, Abner threatens to switch sides to go with team David. And he betrays in the process what he knew all along. Verse nine, God do so to Abner and more also if I don't accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. You see, in 2 Samuel 2, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's resisting God's plan and promises. He's resisting God's king. He's replacing God's kingdom for one of his own making. He's making himself God. Now, in the rest of this chapter of 2 Samuel 2, the tension rises between two competing kingdoms. So the fourth point is the battle of two kingdoms. And under this fourth point, we'll see four different parts of the story as these two kingdoms collide in conflict. The first is a challenge. We might call it a challenge. At least that's what we find in the middle of the first scene, a challenge. But some things precede it. So look at verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, 
and the servants, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right, verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now it's hard to, to see all the, the stages of what's going on because it happens so quickly and stuff that we're not very familiar with. It's, it's many cultures and years and millennia away. But notice that this starts with Abner making a first move. He initiates. He's the aggressor here. He moves his men 36 miles in the southern direction towards Judah. This is like 10 Russian MiGs flying along the coast of Alaska. You can't do that. That's a move, right? That's a signal. And so Joab and his men respond just like the U.S. would do. If Russia did that to us, we, we would intercept. We would meet them there. And that's what happens. So they meet there. But rather than a battle, we see something quite peaceable happen in verse 13. In verse 13, this meeting at the pool is essentially a peace summit. It's something hopeful. It's not a battle. It's even placid or peaceful. It's them with still waters between them. And they're separated by them. They're sitting down. They're there to talk. They're not there to fight. And the hope is peace, a resolution, not war. But again, it's Abner who initiates, who's the aggressor. He throws down the challenge. Verse 14, let the young men arise and compete before us. Let's have a competition, a, a, a sport. 12 men versus 12 men, he says. And we don't know exactly what this was, what kind of challenge this was, whether it was feats of strength or my memo, our communications director told me after first service, it must have been soccer. <laughs> Except he said football. And I was like, it wasn't football. Anyway, so it's some sport, but it's not war. And that may sound peaceable. It might sound peaceable that Abner proposed a 12-man challenge and not war. But don't miss the fact that he has abandoned the peace talks. Abner's impatience gives up on the pool party of peace in order to solve the problem with strength. The challenge goes awry when all 12 on each side end up dead. Not what was intended, but apparently things escalated. So verse 16 says, each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. The challenge goes further awry as it's summed up in the next verse, verse 17. The battle was very fierce that day. So it's gone from a peace talk to a challenge to 24 dead to now all-out battle and very fierce battle. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants that day. Here's the point thus far. God's kingdom is opposed, 
viciously, persistently, violently, but God's kingdom is sure. After all the blood is spilt at the end, Team David, Team God has come out the other side victorious. The next scene is a chase, a chase. We won't take extensive time to talk about it, but we'll read the whole thing. Look at verse 18. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. Remember, Abner is Team Saul. And as Asahel went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the other young men. Get one of my other guys. Don't kill me. Take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So here's one of those places where we might be tempted to sympathize with Abner, Team Saul, and not this pesky Asahel. Don't say that too fast, right? <laughs> Perhaps Asahel, Asahel was a bit too persistent in his pursuit of Abner. We don't know. It doesn't comment. Perhaps he was. That would be just fine. We, we wouldn't be surprised by that. Even in the true kingdom, it's made up of subjects who are not perfect. Not yet. And yet, the whole of the chapter would seem to say... He is persistent in his pursuit of God's enemies and those who are leading the charge against God's anointed. There's a chase, and yet it ends in the pursuer's death, not, not the guilty one. God's kingdom is imperfect now. God's kingdom looks threatened at times. But God's kingdom is sure. It is sure. Then we see a truce. The next scene is a truce. That's what we see in the middle, but it's not, again, where it starts. It starts with the battle coming to a climax. Remember, Abner on Team Saul had just killed Asahel, who was on Team David and was Joab's brother. So now Joab, no doubt motivated somewhat by avenging his brother's death. In verse 24, he pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Both generals have faced off with their men behind them. They take their stand. But Abner speaks, verse 26. He called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? 
And here again, we want to fight against, we should want to fight against having sympathy for Abner. I know he sounds like the more level-headed here, doesn't he? He sounds more reasonable. He he gives a multi-level appeal for why we should just put down swords and quit all the bloodshed and violence. That sounds rational. But you know what he's doing here? He's blaming fully Joab for the warring, which is far from the reality of the matter. And hence, Joab won't take that lying down. Verse 27, Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. At least that's what the ESV says. The ESV and a lot of other translations make it sound like the phrase, if you had not spoken, refers to just the verse before where there Abner appealed to to cease fire. But I think it makes more sense in the flow of the chapter to understand this phrase, if you had not spoken, to refer all the way back to what Abner said in verse 14. In verse 14, there was the challenge, remember? And so this is the translation and interpretation that we find in the New American Standard Version. This is right. If you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away, each following his own brother. If you had not spoken that stupid challenge, we would have ended the peace talks peaceably and we would have went home, all of us. To put it in terms of the playground, well, you started it. Don't blame us if we're the ones to finish it. And yet, regardless of the blame that lies at Abner's feet, Joab agrees to a truce. Verse 28, Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Well, it's a truce, sort of. A truce, sort of. It's not the kind of truce where two parties shake hands and calmly walk away in opposite directions. You see verse 29? And Abner and his men, that is, Team Saul, they went all through the night, through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. The pursuit of Abner. You see? Abner and company, retreat. Joab pursues. He chases them off. He escorts them back all the way through the night into the next morning, a 36 trek all the way back to where they started before they got this crazy idea of trying to go fight Judah. Now, I don't often pull out a map on a Sunday morning for a sermon, but I do think it helps with 2 Samuel 2 here. By the way, you can go to Bible Geo, just search Bible Geo, and it's a a whole website. You click on any chapter of the Bible, it's going to pull up a map like this. In fact, the one on 2 Samuel 2 has a lot more cities than this. I just simplified it. But it uses Google Earth to give you any map about any cities mentioned in any chapter of the Bible. Super handy if you're a map nerd. I'm not. I just have to occasionally look up stuff like this. And, and here's what we see, some things we've already talked about. Hebron is where David and his headquarters are now. 
Mahanim, Mahanaim is where uh, team Saul had been, had been living and, and dwelling, where they left. They left from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And at Gibeon was where they, they had this peace talk that went sour and hence 24 died and then a battle broke out and, and now here we are. But again, the truce doesn't just mean they shake hands and walk away. Instead, it means that Joab and his men chase them all the way back some 36 miles to Mahanaim. It's no truce. It is instead a merciful defeat. So by the end of this chapter, Team Saul has conspired against God's people again and again and again and made no advance against Judah. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In fact, there was pretty serious loss. So at the end of verse 30 here, we see when all the people gathered together, they were missing 19 people from David's side. And then the next verse, 360 were missing of Abner's men. An 18 to 1 differential. Now lastly, we see a summary. We'll tip our toe into just one verse of chapter 3 to read a summary of these days. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, a civil war that lasted until 2 Samuel 5. But here's the point. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So the king has come. The kingdom is here. But it doesn't come all at once. It's not acknowledged by everyone. Many will resist it, oppose it, or seek to replace it. It is often small, marginalized, imperfect, and seemingly unpromising. And yet, it is sure. And it is slowly advancing. What was true of David and his kingdom is even more so of David's son, Jesus, and his kingdom. In Luke 1, the angel told Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He is the king. He is the eternal king. He's the promised king. And yet, it doesn't look like a king. From day one, you're getting mixed signals, right? He's born in a manger, and yet magi come from the east recognizing his kingship and giving gifts accordingly. Pilate, that's our Herod, seeks to kill him. Because he's a rival. It doesn't look like a king, and yet he's a threat to Herod. He's not a king like the nation's. He grows up in poverty and works with his hands. And somewhere around the age of 30 or 33 or so, he, he begins a traveling, itinerant, homeless ministry of preaching and preaching and preaching and healing. And thus, when Pilate asked if Jesus was a king in John 18, it, it was bewildering. Jesus, with a crown of thorns upon his head, answered Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would have been fighting that I might not be handed over. But my kingdom is not from the world. A chapter later, Pilate presented Jesus to the people. He said, Behold your king. 
And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? Doesn't make any sense. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. They had rejected God. They had rejected his king. They had rejected his kingdom. They couldn't see it. Nevertheless, Jesus' kingdom is not in the least and has never been threatened by those who reject it. In fact, Jesus' kingdom was actually established in their rejection of him as king. You say, how do we know he is king? Because he entered death and defeated it. Because he hung on the tree and went in the grave, but he is there no more. Yes, he was crucified at the hands of sinners. But this didn't mean the king was defeated. It was the very means by which he'd be exalted. And he would bear a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died in our place to bring us to God, to reconcile us to him, to transfer us from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He does this only through his cross and resurrection. It's our only hope. It's the only means by which we'll see him as a glorious king and place ourselves under his lordship and follow him all our days. Would you believe that? Would you embrace that? Abner... Would you give up your kingdom? Abner, quit fighting. You know the promises. You know what God's word says. You know what God says to you. You know that your gracious king, Jesus, says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Enter the kingdom. Enter it only through the cross of Christ on account of the king's love and gracious invitation. And if you have, then seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom in all things and walk by faith and not by sight. Make his glory and his rule and his ways and his truth your everything. And proclaim his kingdom that comes to the cross. He sends us out as messengers of the good news to his would-be enemies with the invitation to come under his rule through his grace. And know as you proclaim and as you face opposition, for you will. You will face suffering in this kingdom. You will face persecution. It seems as though in our country, the writing is on the wall. That will come quickly and in ways we haven't experienced in this country, perhaps, ever. But know that his kingdom is sure, that Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Live your life like one day we will sing with the angels of heaven that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And until then, let us pray like he taught us, would you bow with me as I pray this familiar, familiar prayer for us? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.